Well, you can keep your uh, hymnal handy there. We're going to be looking primarily at Philippians chapter 2 tonight, but we're also going to tie that in with the Nicene Creed. I was trying to find a confession that kind of in a nutshell grasped the humiliation and subsequent exaltation of Christ, and uh, I think it's the Nicene Creed that captures that best kind of in one, one nutshell. Um, but I, I asked for Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 14 through 19, just to be referenced, and I didn't realize it was all going to be printed out, but there you have it in the bulletin. Um, so we're not going to be reading all of that, don't worry. Um, but you can reference that later uh, to kind of follow up on what we're looking at tonight. Uh, so this is, of course, very familiar to us if we've grown up in the church, these words from the Nicene Creed. And I'm going to mostly just focus on um, that larger middle section there. And uh, some torrential rain. I heard a little bit of thunder. So the lights suddenly go off. Don't be alarmed. So first, um, the Nicene Creed. I'm just going to read a little portion of this, and then we'll read together Philippians 2. And in, or, so I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. So that there is speaking of how Christ was God from eternity past. Then it says, Who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. That there's Christ's humiliation. And the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And that there, of course, speaking of Christ's exaltation. We'll leave off the reading of that there. Then I invite you to turn to Philippians 2, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, one of Paul's letters. Chapter 2, we'll read from verse 1 to 11. God's Word says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Well, why don't we take just a moment to ask for the Lord's blessing on our time studying this together. Almighty God, again, as we... um, bow before you, we ask for your blessing on your word. Bless it to our minds and our hearts. Lord, the, the material that we're looking at this evening is in some ways maybe a little bit more technical. Um, and Lord, as we try to wrap our minds around some of the things that are, are going on, we want to learn more about who you are. But we pray that you would also lift up our hearts to you, that the truths that we look at would then affect our hearts and that then Through that, you would also reshape our lives by your Spirit, that we would know how to live for your glory. Lord, lift up our hearts to praise you. Father, even as the the rain falls from heaven and doesn't return void, we pray that your word would also not return void. We ask this for Jesus' sake and for your glory. Amen. Well, there was a bishop who came from North Africa in the 4th and 5th century. His name was St. Augustine of Hippo. St. Augustine of Hippo, you might have heard of him before. He's considered one of the prominent Christian uh, thinkers and uh, theologians after the Apostle Paul. And uh, there was one time when St. Augustine was asked if he could give a list of the principles by which the Christian should live. Well, he said there's three principles. The first, he said, was humility. The second one, you hazard a guess, St. Augustine said, second one was humility. The third one, maybe you see where this is going, the third one is, again, humility. Humility, humility, humility. This is how St. Augustine answered the question. Well, our text tonight we see here uh, how humility was embodied in Jesus Christ. And if you want to know what true humility is, then you need to look at him. If humility is one of the greatest virtues, then uh, we might also say one of the greatest vices that we face is, of course, pride. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. What did the devil say? You too can be gods. And in pride, they thought, Oh, yes, maybe we can. What inspired, what inspired the inhabitants um, of the earth to build the Tower of Babel up to the heaven and to say, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's become gods. Again, it's pride, isn't it? And you and I and the human race ever since Adam and Eve's fall into sin is plagued by this sin, the sin to turn in pride away from God in rebellion. And so our text today primarily calls us to humility, and it shows us the beauty of Christ and how he himself was characterized by humility. And so our theme is how Christ humbled himself to save us, how he was then exalted to reign in glory, and how this is an example for the Christian to follow. We have three points. The first one is the exhortation of Paul, secondly, the humility of Christ, And third, the exaltation of Christ. So the exhortation of Paul, 
The humility of Christ, or if you like alliteration, we can use an E word and say the emptying, emptying of Christ. Um, But as we'll see, there's some challenges with that language. And then third, the exaltation of Christ. So first, the the exhortation of Paul, and uh, we'll look at this just, just very briefly, but we need to take into account the context in which we find verses 5 through 11. And so Paul, if we were to think back closer to the beginning of his letter, prayed that the Christians in Philippi would be overflowing with the love of Christ, that they'd be pure and blameless when Christ would return. In chapter 1, verse 27, he commanded them to live a life that was worthy of the gospel, to stand firm and to be united a key concept in this book, in this letter, to be united, unity. This unity was um, supposed to work within the church so that they would then work together for the cause of the gospel. And in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2, which we read, Paul is again, still, exhorting the church to live in that unity, to be humble and to be selfless towards one another. And then the verses just after our text, 12 through 18 of chapter 2, Paul calls the Christians here to shine the light of Jesus in a corrupt and evil society. He tells them not to complain or grumble. And so the basic point here is that Paul is and will again be exhorting these Christians to godliness. But then in the middle of that there, we see this picture of Christ what his mindset, his disposition, his attitude was, his gospel-worthy mindset of unity and of love, but that specifically that mindset of humility and selflessness. And so we're called today to look to Jesus, who unlike you and unlike me and unlike Adam, who lived a perfect life of humility. Now, we want to just caveat that real quick as we think about how Paul is exhorting the Christians to live in the example of Christ. In the 18 and 1900s, there was a stream of liberal theology flowing primarily from Germany, but really permeating the whole Western world. A liberal theology that basically boiled down Christ to to just an example, just an example to follow. And much of the Western world was drinking this Kool-Aid. And then in subsequent years after that, the 1900s, the, um, even on into the 2000s, today still, a lot of people want to boil down Jesus just to being a good prophet, a good example to follow. Well, we want to, we want to reject that. That's not what the Bible teaches. Bible teaches us that Jesus, first and foremost, is our Savior. He did what you and I could not do. He died on the cross to pay for our sins. He took the wrath of God. We could never do that. In that sense, He's unique and He's our Savior. He did something we needed Him to do that we could never do. But at the same time, we do want to acknowledge that here and in other places, We are called to follow after the master, that he does also set an example for us. And that's what Paul is doing for these Christians. He is saying, look to Jesus. Look to how he lived in obedience to the Father, the humility that he had, and follow that. 
And then we, we move to our other major points here tonight, the humility of Christ, or we can say the emptying of Christ. Verses 6 through 8 there, after Paul has said in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Then in verses 6 through 8, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. The Spirit's showing us here as we confess with the Nicene Creed how Christ came down from heaven for us and for our salvation, was made man, suffered, and was crucified, but then rose again victorious, ascended to heaven, and now reigns as King and Lord. In a word, we see Christ's humiliation and then exaltation. This phrase here, Christ being in the form of God, it might at first sound a little odd to our ears. Uh, the way that the NIV renders it is that Christ was in the very nature of God. And that's the kind of, that's the basic idea that Paul is getting at here. Christ is in the very nature of God. And this is confirmed for us, if you see there in verse 6, by the fact that Paul says, Christ is, in fact, equal with God. But then secondly, it's also confirmed by way of a contrast that Paul uses the same word there, the same language of being in the form of God first, but then contrasting that, taking the form of a servant in verse 7. So what the Bible teaches us about Christ, as as affirmed here, is that from eternity past... The second person of the Trinity is God. We can see that clearly throughout the Scriptures. John 1.1, we're told that Jesus Christ was with God in the beginning, and that all things were created through Him, and nothing nothing that was made was made apart from Him. Hebrews 1 tells us, again, the same thing. Christ was in the very nature of God. The Father, His throne was from everlasting to everlasting. Titus 2 calls Jesus the great God and Savior. Thomas, of course, confesses Him, my Lord and my God. Isaiah told us so long ago that the Messiah who would come would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. The Belgic says it for us like this, that Christ is God from eternity past, being the exact image of the person of the Father and the reflection of His glory. Similar language to what Paul says in Colossians. Being in all things like Him from eternity past, true, eternal God, the Almighty, whom we invoke, worship, and serve. It's the Belgic Confession. Jesus is, of course, also in John 8, a familiar text. He identified Himself with the great I am who I am. And the religious leaders around him knew exactly what he was doing, that he was making himself equal to God. That's why they picked up stones and wanted to stone him. So Christ, we see first, is in the very form or nature of God. And yet, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. What Paul's communicating here is that Christ didn't use his own rank and status for his own personal gain. 
He didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to. The Philippians, you see, they were struggling with pride. They were battling amongst each other. There was disunity within the church. There was infighting. There was one-upmanship, grasping at status, vying for power. They were guilty in many ways of selfishness. In contrast, Paul says, Christ, who was in the most supreme place in the universe, did not consider his status to be for his own personal advantage. Rather, we read in verse 7, that Christ made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now here's where we uh, maybe run into a little bit of a challenge in that that language that Christ made himself nothing can literally be translated as he emptied himself. He emptied himself. And so some over the last 200 years or so and, and leading up to the present day, some have taken this to mean that Christ then laid aside his divinity. We, we say God is all-powerful. Well, when Christ be, took on flesh, he laid that aside. God is all-knowing. He knows everything. Well, when Christ took on flesh, he laid that aside. He emptied himself of that. The Greek word that's used is kenao, and so perhaps you've heard of this theory before. It's called the kenosis theory. But think about it. Is this then what the Scriptures actually tell us about Christ as he lived and ministered on earth? Was he devoid of the power that he had as God? Did he, as it were, lay aside his divine nature? Clear answer of Scripture is no. You can think just simply, for example, of how Jesus was worshipped at his birth. Only God is worthy of worship. You think of how he turned water to wine. He multiplied bread and fish. He had power over disease, over blindness, over demons. The winds and the waves obeyed him. So that those around him marveled, who is this man? He had power to forgive sins. Power reserved for God alone. He had power over death itself. So Christ did not empty himself of divinity. Calvin, John Calvin, says rather that divinity was veiled. Divinity was not emptied, but it was veiled. One commentator says that we're not called to speculate so much about what Christ emptied himself of. Our eyes should instead in the text be on what Christ emptied himself into. Verse 7 and 8 make that clear, should make it obvious to us that Jesus made himself of no reputation by becoming a servant, by taking on our own likeness. He was found in appearance as a man. And in this way, humbled himself. It's quite a mind-blowing picture, isn't it? That the eternal Lord of glory, the uncreated one, stepped off his throne veiled his glory and stooped down to become a lowly servant. And with his glory veiled, he was found on earth then in our own likeness. What an incredible, incredible picture. And that the text then tells us that not only did he stoop down to our sin-filled, mucky 
world in rebellion against God with all of its brokenness, but he also then stooped down to becoming a servant. The lowest of the low, down to that very death on a cross. So Christ, the eternal Son of God, he didn't put off his divinity, didn't empty himself of his divine prerogatives and power. He concealed his divinity, as it were, and took our nature. The God who's holy, 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 who dwells in unapproachable light in the person of Christ, stepped down into our lowly existence. Isn't that amazing? This is, the, this is part of the mystery of the gospel, isn't it? Think about it. The one who had created the Virgin Mary entered into her womb by the work of the Holy Spirit. The one who held the universe in, his, in the palm of his hand, as it were, was dependent on others to carry him. Born, Paul says in Galatians 4, of a woman. Isn't that amazing? Living just like you and me in every way except for sin. The one who supplies living water said, I thirst. The one who multiplied bread was hungry in the wilderness. The one who knew all things as a child had to learn to walk. Christ took on flesh, bone, and blood, just like you and me, except for sin. There's a beautiful Christmas song by Sovereign Grace. Two of the stanzas go like this. How low was our Redeemer brought, the King who held the stars, lay helpless in a maiden's arms and pressed against her heart. While sheep and cattle raised their voice, the babe could speak no words. The ever-flowing spring of joy had come to share our thirst. How low was our Redeemer brought, the Lord the worlds obeyed, would stumble as he learned to walk upon the ground he'd made. The one the angels bowed before would kneel to wash our feet and be at home among the poor, though he owned everything. Isn't that incredible? So Christ, he came as a man, eternal God, taking on our mortal flesh. God, as it were, incognito. Heidelberg Catechism Q&A 35 says, The eternal Son of God who is and remains true and eternal God took to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary a true human nature so that he might also become David's true descendant like his brothers in all things except sin. Then notice next that Christ in his humility becomes obedient as we already mentioned, to the point of death. Now, who was Christ obedient to? In, in the grand sense, it wasn't Pilate, it wasn't Caesar. It was to God the Father. And we know that it was the Father's will to crush him, to bring him down to that point of the death on the cross. And that cross was a shameful death, something that we maybe easily forget in our day, Right? We paint the cross, we tattoo the cross, we wear the cross as jewelry. But the cross, to a Roman, was the most shameful experience. When someone was sentenced to crucifixion, there was a formula that was used, spoken, because that little four-letter word for the cross would not be uttered. Cicero, an ancient, he said this. He was a famous Roman statesman and philosopher. He said, let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. 
This was rock-bottom humiliation. And that's how far down our Savior went. To a Roman citizen in Philippi, the word was the greatest offense. And to a Jew, to be hung on a cross was to be cursed by God himself. Now, why is that important? Because it was man who sinned. It was man who brought on the curse of death in this world. And so the Son of God had to then take on that curse himself. That's what he did when he went to the cross. And there, hanging, mocked, beaten, naked, cursed for you in complete shame. On that note of shame, we were to pause here for a minute and, and think, about, think about something that you've done, something in your own life that's shameful. Maybe a sin, maybe, maybe something this last week, a way in which you've, you swore at somebody, you, you lost your cool, as it were. Maybe a way in which you cheated or, or stole, a way in which you were oppressive to someone else. Maybe a sexual sin that you'd be absolutely ashamed if others found out about it. Well, what if we had evidence of that? What if, what if we had a, a video of it, as it were, or something like that, and posted it on social media? You'd probably be so ashamed you'd crawl under a rock and not want to be seen. I, I, I know I would. There are many things in our lives, many sins we've committed that bring us just absolute shame. But now, think. Turn your mind to that man on the cross who died in complete shame for you and for me. He took all of your sin, all of the shame that you've, you've merited for your own sin, for my own sin, all of that shame, Jesus Christ himself, when he died that shameful death, he took it all. He took it all. What a glorious God and what a glorious gospel. So Christ, he was obedient to the point of death on the cross. And that, of course, was the exact opposite of Adam, Adam and Eve, who made in the image of God, used their privileged status to grasp after equality with God, and disobeyed and brought death. Adam and Eve, rebelling against God in pride, Christ acting in humility. Adam, disobeying God, believing the devil's lie that he could even become like God, Christ, taking on our flesh, humbly obeying the Father, grasping death as it were, that you and I, through him, can lay hold of life. What a beautiful picture. By one man's disobedience, says Paul in Romans 5, sin entered the world and death came to all. But by the obedience of one man, the man Jesus Christ, the free gift of grace and righteousness has come so that by Christ's obedience in dying on the cross, eternal life might be offered to all who look to him in faith. Why was it so important that Christ, though he was God from eternity past, that he should take on our flesh? Simply because it was humanity that sinned, you and I, and that Christ in doing so, he's the greater Adam. And as the God-man, he then pays for your sin and for my sin. The author of life, humbling himself to die a bitter and shameful death in your place, in my place. Praise God. And then lastly, the exaltation of Christ. Christ, after this great humiliation, was also raised up. 
was exalted. One of my favorite stories is Lord of the Rings. And in that story, Tolkien, which Tolkien wrote, uh, he tells of a character who's named Gandalf. Now, Gandalf was a wizard, and uh, Gandalf, who's called first, Gandalf the Grey. But then at one point in the story, he has a death and resurrection-like experience. Now, Tolkien is clearly borrowing from the Christian world. And there's a story of after that happens, Gandalf, who is now Gandalf the White, who's exalted in power, who's dressed in pure white, who's a magnificent figure, there's a story of him going to a king, King Theoden. And when they go in to meet him, King Theoden is under the power of the enemy. And Gandalf, even though he's Gandalf the White in power and glory and so forth, he he clothes himself in a a simple gray garment that you can't really tell who he is. And then they go in, and when he's before the king, he throws off this garment. There's this incredible scene when all of a sudden, ah, Gandalf there in in his power. Well, beloved, in an infinitely greater way, when God raised Christ from the grave and raised him again to heaven, that garment, as it were, was thrown off. The divinity was no more veiled. But Christ there, exalted to the highest possible position, was no longer God, as it were, incognito, but there, again, God in all of his glory. So that the Apostle John, when he sees him in the, uh, in the Revelation, when he sees the resurrected, ascended, glorified Christ, he falls down at his feet as though dead because of his almighty glory. And so we read in verses 9 through 11 there, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So after Christ's humiliation, he was exalted, raised up by God, raised from the grave, raised to heaven, raised to reign with God at his own right hand on the throne of heaven. And this is what the prophet Isaiah had foreshadowed, spoken of so long before. You might be familiar with the famous servant songs of Isaiah. Chapters 52 and 53 has the the greatest, the most popular, famous servant song. And Isaiah told us there already that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, that is the servant who would come, who is Jesus, to crush him, and he has put him to grief. That's speaking, of course, of the humiliation of Christ. Christ would pour out his soul to death, would be numbered with the transgressors. But then, that song, that servant song, also says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. High and lifted up. That's an expression that the Bible uses, that Isaiah in particular uses, only for God. That God is the one who is high and lifted up. But here, Paul is saying, Christ, because of who he, who he is and what he has done, God has highly exalted him, raised him up to the highest possible position in the universe, reigning on the very throne of God. And he's bestowed on Christ, Paul tells us, a name above every name, a name at which every knee 
will bow. Just a, and then we see there, I mean, we, we think about it, that at, at this very moment, as, as you and I are here worshiping, that at this very moment, heaven itself is full of the praises of Christ. We read from Revelation 5, that picture of the Lamb on the throne receiving honor and glory and praise. And we are here today praising our God. We know that Christians around the world today gathered to do the same. But if we think about that, we also realize that there are billions of people on this globe who are not praising Christ. Countless myriads of people who are instead taking in vain the name of the Lord. Christ and Jesus are are used as swear words, freely used. But the Bible tells us, the Bible tells us here that there's a day coming when every single knee is going to bow before Jesus, either in worship and praise or in fear and in terror. No one's going to be able to stand on that day not the greatest atheist, not even the demons, not the devil himself. Every knee will bow before Christ. And every tongue is going to confess him. Paul says, whether in heaven, on earth, or under the earth, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The hymn builds to this beautiful crescendo. And this is something else we can see from the prophet Isaiah. He talked there in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, where he said, I am the Lord, this is God speaking, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. I am the Lord, again, another text. There is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord. There is no other God. There is no other Lord. But then, remarkably, Isaiah 45, verse 23, says this, To me every knee shall bow, again to the Lord, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. And in another translation, it's rendered, Every tongue shall confess. That's the language that Paul is picking up to then speak of Jesus. The link here between Isaiah and the letter to the Philippians is that this is then applied to Christ, the God-man. And rightfully so. He was in the very form of God, as we already talked about. He was equal with God. Then the remarkable thing is, and one of the mysteries of the gospel, is that Christ, the eternal, uncreated God, took on flesh, lived our human experience, died on that cross, was raised again from death, raised to the throne of God, and is given that name that is to God alone. So let's pause here just before we wrap things up. What have we been saying? That Christ, in his humility, being from eternity past God, was then raised again to reign with God after his glory had been veiled for a time. And so maybe you're thinking, well, okay, so What's the difference? He was here, and now he is here again. The beautiful thing, the point is, of what we're saying, is that, as one theologian put it, now 
the dust of earth is, as it were, on the throne of heaven. God didn't need us. He didn't need you. He didn't need me. He was perfect in himself. There was perfect unity and fellowship within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But for your salvation, for my salvation, Christ stooped down to that point of becoming a servant, dying on a cross, being exalted again, so that you and I, through faith, may then also be exalted with Christ. That we also then might reign with him. As scripture says, God is gathering a people to be a kingdom of priests. That we will one day reign with Christ forever. Well, as we wrap up, we see first the God-man, Jesus Christ. He does reign as king of kings. He is highly exalted. He has that name that is above all names and all things are being placed under his feet. He is Lord of lords. Does your knee bow to him today? Do you bow to him? Do you confess him as such? Do you know him as Lord and as Savior? If so, then we rejoice together as brothers and sisters in Christ. If so, this is what the church does. The church rejoices in this Lord. And we recognize that as our call to worship says, said, from Revelation 5, that one day we'll be gathered together with all of the saints, worshiping and honoring and adoring God, the Father and the Son, reigning on the throne in the fellowship of the Spirit. Again, another beautiful uh, modern hymn says, From heaven you came, helpless babe, entered our world, your glory veiled, not to be served but to serve, and give your life that we might live. This is our God, the servant king. He calls us now to follow him, to bring our lives as a daily offering of worship to the servant king. And so then you and I are also called to follow him, to follow his pattern of humility and selflessness, to follow his example, to worship him as who he is, king of kings, but also to walk in that same pattern of servitude, of humility, of lowliness, to love one another, to learn, to put aside our differences, not to blindly glaze over them, but in humility to count others more significant than ourselves, not to act in rivalry towards others. Are you, are you better than the person sitting beside you? We're all equal in a sense, as it were, before the foot of the cross, that the blood of Christ that bought me, that bought you, that is able to buy all of God's people. It levels the ground before the cross, as it were. None of us has a reason to boast. And so in following Christ's example, we're to have this disposition towards one another, disposition of humility and of selfless service. As St. Augustine said, humility, humility, humility. That is to be our posture at home, not lording it over one another, not speaking oppressively to those around us, in our workplace, at church, both in our disposition to leaders of the church and as leaders then also to serve in that same selfless, humble way, serving the people of God. Well, maybe you're listening to this today. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe this is something that you actually needed to hear today. 
that Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords, that he is King of Kings, that he is reigning in heaven at this very moment, and that there is a day coming that he will return in all of his glory. And on that day, he will judge the living and the dead. So if you are listening and you're not a Christian, think about that. Let that, let that sink in. Don't act like Joseph Stalin. It was reported that on his deathbed, he's dying. He had moments to live and he raised himself up in bed and he one last time shook his fist at heaven. Away with you, God. The Bible calls us, today is the day of salvation. We can put our faith in Christ, bow ourselves in humility before him because there's a day coming when every single one of us will acknowledge Christ as Lord and as King, either in praise and adoration to him or in submission to him under his judgment. Maybe you're a Christian who's backsliding. Maybe your love for Christ has grown cold. The call in a lot of ways is the same. To turn again back to Christ as king, to realize that he lived a life of obedience to the Father and that there is no sin that he is not able to pay on your behalf and on my behalf, that he completely removes our shame and we can go to him freely. And then lastly, for you and I who are believers, we have this great hope of vindication and resurrection. We will never be required to walk that same exact pathway as Christ. And this is where um, there is a, a break between following the example of Christ. He is different than we can ever be. And God will never require us to humble ourselves to the point of dying on a cross and providing salvation. But the beautiful reminder from this text is that you and I, when Christ returns, will be raised up with glory. And Paul says that even now, we're to set our minds on Christ because even now we're reigning with him in glory. And so set your hope on Christ. Christ, the God-man who lived in our likeness and who now reigns in heaven. How low was our Redeemer brought to raise us from our shame And now the highest praise of all belongs to Jesus' name. The healer wounded on a tree to bear our grief and sin. The king gave up his crown that we could ever reign with him. Let's pray. Almighty, glorious God, we praise you. We praise you that uh, we have such a great Savior and Redeemer who stooped down and took on our own likeness, our form, who was found in our flesh in every way except for sin who tasted of our difficulties and trials, but who then was also raised again to glory. Lord, help us to eagerly await that day, to hope for this, that even now already by faith we reign with Christ. We are already seated at your right hand through your Son. Give us greater faith and help us, Lord, to press on and persevere in this life as we wait for our Savior to return in all of his glory and all of his power. Help us in these things, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.